Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Aviation Avenue podcast. Folks, I'm very happy to be back with you recording another episode of our uh, podcast. My name is Brandon Piscopo. I'm your, I'm your host. Uh, everybody, so not much to uh, discuss. Um, just mostly relaxing this weekend because uh, uh, I was just uh, not really uh, doing much. And uh, yeah, so everybody... Uh, we're going to be looking back at our BT-13 episode with uh, Alex Monroe, who was the guest on that episode. Um, everybody, we hope you guys uh, enjoy it, and we will talk to you on the backhand. Ho- hope you enjoy it, everybody. My name is Alex Monroe. I live in Tacoma, Washington. I work for the Boeing Company. This airplane is a 1942 BT-13. It was a basic trainer. Almost every single military pilot in World War II had some stick time in this aircraft or in an aircraft like this. Volte is a fairly unknown name in aircraft history. Uh, Volte bought out uh, Consolidated, who made the Catalina and the B-24, uh, and then eventually became Convair, which most people do know who that is. This is a nine-cylinder Pratt & Whitney R985, 450 horsepower. It's got a single-stage supercharger driven off the back of the crank. Originally, these airplanes had a two-position prop for takeoff and cruise, and this one has, like most of these that are left remaining, uh, has a constant speed prop. Of the over 11,000, almost 500 of them built, there are between 20 and 50 left in the world, and there's the number of flying is pretty close to 20, so that I that I know of. There's uh, now two flying in the state and a third one that just needs an annual, and that would be a pretty good number to have around. Uh, this airplane belongs to my uncle, who lives in uh, Efreda. So I'm the one that gets to fly it, super, super lucky in that regard. Um, I've been flying uh, almost 21 years, um, been a flight instructor, and now just fly for enjoyment. I keep current by flying a Citabria, and then I get to fly this thing. Last year I put about 35 hours on it. Uh, I got to fly it to Minnesota, uh, left it there for uh, a month at a company called Weep No More, and they resealed the wet wings uh, so that um, it's good to go. Um, most of these leak. The most common thing is people mistake this for a T6, um, which is understandable. They look very similar. They're actually within two inches of each other as far as the wingspan, length, height, all that stuff. This airplane has 50, about, I think, uh, 50 square feet less of wing area, but it also weighs 1,000 pounds less. So whereas the T6 has a 600-horse motor, um, this isn't really hurting for performance. It flies, flies well. It's actually, if anything, easier to drive on the ground than my Citabria is and, and handles better. And you can make a crappy landing and the big struts take care of you, so, and I've, I've done that. So Volte was known as the first company that hired women on the line and paid them the same wage as the men were making. Uh, they were built in uh, California. Um, it was also one of the first moving lines assembly. They had uh, there was a I'm trying to think modular construction, so they wanted to be able to use the same tail cone on a P66 Vanguard and some other aircraft that they created, uh, and that explains why it has a symmetrical airfoil, unlike the T6, which has a flat bottom and, mo- and most aircraft. So it gives it some different handling qualities, but um, it's not too bad. So most of these after the war were gutted. They were sold. This airplane I just found out recently was uh, purchased by somebody for $775, all the stories you hear about, you know, getting an airplane full of gas and so forth, it happened. Uh, most of them were just uh, gutted for the Pratt & Whitney 450, which they put on Stearman's to make crop dusters out of them. And uh, they also took the wheels and brakes, which they actually suck. So, I don't know why they did that. Um, 
this airplane has been refitted with red lines, so it's, uh, it's actually great brakes on here now. As the war went on, and they were, uh, so the original planes were the blue and yellow, like a PT-19. They ditched the paint pretty quick. And then as the war went on, they actually started replacing these metal components with plywood. So they were actually using phenolic resin and layers of wood to create the entire tail cone, the outboard wing panels, the horizontal vertical stabilizer, all that stuff. So uh, the, the plane that's in Pasco, I've seen it up close. It only has a few of the wood components, like the floorboards that are inside the fuselage are wood. The stick, instead of being, you know, this military-looking stick, it's like a closet rod with, you know, it's been painted silver and black on the end and all that, but... The panels in this airplane are original. Uh, people have asked me a few times today when it was restored. It has never been restored. This is a survivor airplane. So uh, we'd like to be able to bring it to air shows and share it. I have put a bunch of kids in here today uh, or any adult that wants to sit in it. Um, I think it's just a way to share aviation with people. So Radio equipment. Of course, that radio equipment back then was would be junk now and this radio is not a whole lot better a lot of people ask about the black mass on top it's uh um it's for the radio antenna there used to be a wire that ran from there to the top of the vertical fin uh now all that's been gone so we do want to you know, restore that and put the wire on here so this is the front cockpit in this airplane um and flown solo it's done from the front because this is where you have to start the engine and run the radios from other than that everything is in the back of the airplane and that's where the instructor would have ridden this aircraft has manual flaps or they crank them down two degrees per turn Maximum is 60 degrees of flaps. Uh, we don't need anything like that. I use 20 in this airplane. 20 is what we use for takeoff. 20 is a go around. Uh, we got enough stuff trying to manage a radial engine, so I figured 20 is nice for final. So you know the typical. You see this when you're looking at T6. The belly of the airplane is so far down there, and then your feet are on those runner boards. Standard instrumentation, nothing crazy. This one right here is your um, the triple gauge. It has your. It's the most important thing on the panel, really. It's the engine health, oil pressure, oil temperature, and fuel pressure. Um, one of the coolest things about this airplane to me is the inertia starter. So it's got that sound that winds up and then, it, then when it engages the clutch and spins the motor over, it's just way cooler than a direct drive, so it's, it's pretty fun. But. Cole, he's my miracle child. So how does your miracle child get cancer? How does that happen? There was a, uh, a mass. Basically, a tennis ball-sized tumor at the base of his uh, base of his brain. Uh, we were then rushed over to our local children's hospital, and that's when they told us that he had cancer. Couldn't believe that something that big was inside his little head. And everybody always says the worst sentence in the world is you have cancer, and it's not. The worst sentence in the world is your child has cancer. Our oncologist reached out to us. Hey, dude. St. Jude knew exactly what was happening. They already had a clinical trial going on. The discoveries that St. Jude makes are shared freely around the world. What was important to me was knowing that anything that we did would help future kids because no child should die of cancer ever. We never got a bill from St. Jude, ever, nor will we ever. Thanks to generous donors like you, Families never receive a bill from St. Jude for treatment, travel, housing, or food, so they can focus on helping their child live. Nobody expects their child to get diagnosed with cancer, but then when they are, you are so grateful that there's a place like St. Jude. We were just treated from the very beginning like family. I think it's um, the most worthwhile place to put your money when it comes to childhood cancer. Join with your debit or credit card right now 
and we'll send you this St. Jude t-shirt that you can proudly wear to show your support. If it were St. Jude, then the people would donate and give money. I, I wouldn't have my boy. Ready to start eating healthier? Meet Cachava. Cachava is the world's healthiest all-in-one meal shake. A complete meal in seconds to keep you going for hours. It's made with over 70 plant-based superfoods and nutrients. You have to manually pump fuel pressure until you prime, and then the rest of the start sequence is pretty normal for anybody who started an airplane, other than we start with the propeller and uh, full, full course pitch. They want all the oil used in the engine until the oil pressure, which generally spikes at 100 PSI after it first starts up. When it comes down a little ways, then we can uh, move the prop lever forward. Then we can start taxiing as soon as we get uh, at least up in the yellow range. So these, they'll do mag check, trim, all that stuff has uh, rudder and elevator trim. Uh, ailerons are not trimmable, but they are adjustable uh, on the ground. Uh, we've not had to do that. The original radio stack would have consumed this entire bay over here on the side. Um, you can just see a couple of things I have for cross-country travel, the in-reach explorer, so that people can see where I'm at, uh, even better than ALT, really. And I just have this standby radio for emergencies. I don't need that. Uh, hooker harnesses, all that makes a pretty comfortable ride. Um, plenty of room, front and back. Uh, there's a very small baggage compartment in the back. You can see that. Uh, you can see the canvas top on that box back there, and then the access panel on the side. Uh, there's some crazy features about this aircraft when people uh, get to it. So this is a, you know, the welded steel tube, and then the tail cone is held on with three bolts. So you can see one of them is at the top, and then there's two down at the bottom, one on each side, and that holds that entire cone on. It doesn't carry all the loads because obviously the, the rings transfer load that way. But yeah, some people find that out. They're like, well, they think that's the reason it's placard against spins. The reason it's placarded against spins is because it doesn't recover normally. You have, there's a different technique and if it doesn't recover in you know two turns instead of the rudder, you can't certify it that way. So that's been, so that's why it's placarded. It's not that it's not a strong airplane. I would not do any snap roll maneuvers in planes that sold anyway. So 60 gallons of fuel each side. Uh, there's a fuel gauge you can see straight down there. I'm um, showing about 40, 40 gallons right here on this tank. Uh, it is actually reading low because once the airplane comes up level, it'll increase a little bit. And then there's the fuel selector here, um, so you're running on one, one tank. The reserve tank is on the right. It's not a real extra tank. There's just a standpipe in there that you'd run out if you only had 17 gallons left, and if you hit reserve, then you've got 17 gallons. So it's pretty simple. Uh, similar to the T6, although I think its reserve tank is left side. Fly with the canopy open as much as I can. Cruising altitude is as, as low as I think I can legally get away with. Um, it's just a fun, fun airplane to fly across country, so it's pretty neat, so ride's good. Uh, Speed-wise, 120 knots. You know, we, an airplane like this, it's all about preserving the engine and the history and all that, so I'm not running wide open in an air show routine. You don't have a huge budget for next engine, so uh, we pull it back like you see the Kenmore Beavers flying. So, and that's the same engine that the, those planes, same engine as the Twin Beach and uh, the Lockheed Electra. Thankfully, there's uh, the engine is the thing you'd most likely need parts on as long as you don't wreck the airplane. Um, there's no parts for these. It's getting to be, you're scraping for those last things like brake master cylinders and 
struts and canopy frames, things like that, you just you can't get them. So my very first airplane ride was with Bud Granley. Um, he took me for a ride in my uncle's T6 that he bought in 1977 or something like that. And uh, so my uncle was going to learn how to fly in that airplane, but he wanted me to get a ride, so Bud took me up in that plane and over Somerset, and we were doing loops and rolls and Cubanates, and uh, that's why I'm here today, actually. So. <laughs> If you're trying to hit the ball, then turf, you're always going to struggle with ball striking. Try thinking about contact like this instead. Hit the ball first, then the turf? That's what everyone says, right? Whether it's a private lesson, YouTube University, or just talking shop with other golfers. That's the common wisdom most golfers believe. But the truth is, you are never going to permanently fix your ball striking until you understand why you're struggling to make solid contact in the first place. So here it is. The one and only reason you struggle with contact is because the ball is not the bottom of your swing. Hi, I'm Martin Chuck, the People's Coach, and one of the Golf Digest 50 Best Teachers in America eight years in a row. I'm known for coaching major winners like Darren Clark and Mike Weir, but I love helping amateur golfers get better at golf so you can have more fun. That's why I've given over 50,000 lessons and hosted over 1,000 golf academies in my career so far. So let me explain what I mean when I say the ball is not the bottom of your swing, and why you should not try to think about hitting the ball then turf. As you can see here, the bottom of your swing address is the golf ball. Makes sense, right? But now, watch how the bottom of the swing shifts back during the backswing. And then, as the golfer moves through impact, the low point, or in other words, the bottom of the swing moves in front of the golf ball. And that's exactly why, unless you plan on swinging without moving any parts of your body except your arms, which I highly advise against, the golf ball will never be at the bottom of your swing. Instead, the perfect strike point is slightly in front of the golf ball. So that means that right now, if you're trying to hit the ball at the bottom of your swing, you're always making poor contact, like fat shots, thin shots, and shanks. Again, I know this is very different than anything you've been told before, so to help you feel what it's like to pure the ball by nailing the perfect strike point consistently, I put together a five-minute simple strike sequence that means you'll never hit another fat, thin, or top shot again after just 10 shots on the range, all without changing your swing. Using just two simple drills, the no-turn-back swing and the low-point control drill, we'll dial in your ball striking forever in less than five minutes and just 10 practice shots. To see all the details of this simple strike sequence and start enjoying consistently solid flush contact, click now and watch the free...
Okay, everybody, that was our uh, episode or look back episode on the uh, BT13 uh, Valiant. We hope you guys uh, enjoy it. Uh, thank you to Alex uh, Monroe for coming on and uh, giving us and uh, discussing this uh, aircraft once again with us. So, everybody, that'll wrap it up for this week. We hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, make sure to follow me on Instagram, Aviation Avenue Pod. Subscribe to my YouTube channel, uh, A- Aviation Avenue. Uh, become a patron at patreon.com slash aviation avenue um be, be sure to use listener support using the uh, links in uh, any uh, podcast platform and um yeah so everybody that'll do it and we will talk to you guys next week all right so long for now everyone